It says there, and soon in heaven it will be said, Jesus led me all the way. Now, the question is not whether or not he's leading, but the, the biggest question is whether or not we're listening, whether or not we're following. Israel had issues with that back in the Old Testament times, did they not? They had a lot of issues with following the directions that God had set forth to them. And that's why God often would send the prophets. The prophets would come with a message that was directed specifically to Israel in the situation that they were in, but also about upcoming situations. And that's what's going on here in Isaiah 47. Isaiah chapter number 47 in your Bibles tonight. Here is a prophecy that is given about Babylon. Now remember how at chapter 40, we kind of turn the corner, as I've said many times before, and we begin to look at prophecies of hope. And this is one of those prophecies of hope. Just think about this. Isaiah has already told Israel that one day uh, this Babylonian city is going to turn into a powerful military empire, and they're going to come conquering. Of course, to Israel, this must sound like what? They're not a, they're not a major player. What makes you think they're going to become a military empire? Um, but one day they're going to come, and they're going to conquer Judah, southern Israel, as well as um, the, the northern part of Israel the Assyrians had already conquered. They're going to take a serious place there uh, in that area. But don't forget about this, Israel. Even though I might be using them to discipline you for the time being, ultimately, you're my children. You're my people. And so I will return again back to you. I will be uh, merciful to you, my people. And so we read here in chapter number 47, it's not a long chapter like last week. We should be able to get through the entire chapter here as it, as it really deals with one topic the whole way through. So it's easy enough for us to just make it through the whole chapter here. But we talk about a prophecy against Babylon here. Look at chapter 47 and we'll read the first three verses. It says this, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind mill. Uncover thy locks, make bare the legs, uncover thy thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. He opens up here the chapter with, Come and sit in the dust. Okay, well, first off, who is he speaking to here? Well, obviously, Isaiah is going to be speaking to Israel. Uh, speaking to Israel in the temporary short term there as he preaches this message of prophecy to them about a future people that have not been born yet. But ultimately, yeah, the message was being directed at Babylon. And here, literarily, I guess we could say, the message is being pointed to the fair maidens of Babylon. Who are these? These are those rich girls that have all the jewelry and have all the fine things. And you know what they spend their days doing? Uh, relaxing, having fun, uh, enjoying themselves, filled with pleasures, filled with laughter and games. And that is how they spend their daily lives. There's not trouble. There's not work. There's not great weights or burdens upon their shoulders. Here he is speaking to the opulent society that is going to be Babylon one day. And of course, when we read about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and we read about Babylon, man, uh, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon being one of the eight wonders of the world. 
This was an opulent society, or at least it was going to be one day, a very wealthy and opulent society. And when you have societies like that, you have the lower class that provides all of the food and all of the amenities, and you have the upper class that lies around and enjoys all of those things. And so here, Isaiah, God, through Isaiah, is speaking to this upper class, to the ones that are just at ease. And he says, come and sit down in the dust. Why on earth would I do that when I have this beautiful, brand new sofa that has been stuffed with ostrich feathers, you know, uh, for me to come and to recline upon? Why on earth would I come and sit down in the dust with you? He says, come and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. We're talking about the youth, the beautiful, those who are still in the, in the prime of their life, attempting to show themselves off, to advertise themselves. Talking about opulence here. He says, there is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans is another name here for the Babylonians or a sect of them. He says, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. It's like when you take somebody who's not very accustomed to any kind of physical labor and you put a shovel in their hands and they're going from the game controller or a cell phone and that's the only thing their hands have ever really rubbed against. And now you put a shovel in their hands with its wooden handle and they think, well, this can't be too hard. And they start to dig. And after a few minutes, their hands are red. And after 20 minutes, 30 minutes, there's blisters popping out on their hands. And well, why is that? Well, because their hands were soft. Their hands were used to simple things. Their hands were used to easy things. Their hands were not used to hardship, not used to holding on to hard things, not used to grabbing on to things, not used to the work and the effort of general life. He speaks to these people. And of course, if God speaks this to the wealthy, to the opulent, to those who are living lives of ease, how bad do you think it's going to get for, the, for everybody else? Here he is speaking to them and talking about how far they're going to come down. You were resting upon sofas in your beautiful gowns, eating grapes and eating these fancy fruits that were imported across the Mediterranean from other places. But now you're going to be sitting in the dust. In fact, he talks more about it. He says, take the millstones and grind mill. Now you're going to have to work. You know, whatever meal you can find, you're going to have to go out there and you're going to have to work to be able to provide food for yourselves. Look what else he says about them. He says, uncover thy locks, make bare thy legs, uncover thy thigh, pass over the rivers. Now you're going to have to take that gold broidery out of your hair and let your hair down. Uh, you're going to have not be able to cover it with such beautiful and fine things anymore. Now your hair is just going to hang as it is. You're not going to have time to put in the, 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 the beautiful braids. You're not going to have time to be able to make yourself so beautiful and pretty because you have work to do. When the sun rises till the sun sets, you're going to be busy making clothing for your family. You're going to be busy making sure there's food for your family. You're going to be living lives just like the poor. And of course, if the rich and the opulent are going to be living that way, what's the rest of Babylon going to be like? He goes on though, and he says this as well. Um, Uncover thy thigh, pass over the rivers. You know, it's girding up your loins. I remember, you know, going on hikes when I was a kid and uh, you get to the rivers and you had a couple options. You could either choose to walk across rocks and hope you didn't fall in and get your pack all wet. Or you take your boots and socks off and roll your pant legs up uh, and, you know, go through the stream and then get to the other side, dry off and put your socks and boots back on again and keep going. 
Uh, that's often the one that I ended up choosing because I didn't want to risk falling in and getting everything soaking wet. But they would have to, you know, gird their loins up, even the women, to cross through the rivers. Now, why would they do that, these rich young women? The, the best that the nation had to offer, the ones they wanted to show off, the ones that are on the magazines in our society and on the TV shows, the ones that are the best looking, no longer are they being paraded around, no longer are they being applauded, no longer are the flowers being thrown to them, no longer are they being paid because of their looks. Now they're down there grinding just like everybody else. Why? Because they're going to be conquered. Somebody's going to come along that is going to depose Babylon, and now those who are going to be living in these opulent lives are going to be working, grinding, and they're going to be carried off across the rivers just like everybody else. As slaves, as prisoners. He goes on to say, Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not meet thee as a man. You know, slaves were not treated well in Bible times. Slavery is not something that suddenly came into existence in 1619, as um, they want you to believe with the 1619 Project and modern uh, literature. Slavery did not just suddenly come into existence. Slavery has been around since the dawn of mankind. And there have been millions and millions and billions of slaves across all cultures and skin colors across all ages, across all continents. But they were not treated well in many cases. You know, they weren't so concerned about them being fully clothed. That didn't matter. We're going to use you for what we need you for, and that's about it. We don't care. Now God says, I will take vengeance. What is God taking vengeance out on Babylon for? Now, we talked about this before. Yes, God was going to use Babylon one day to discipline his people, Israel. But does this mean that Babylon was justified in what they did to Israel? Oh, no. In fact, Babylon went even further in their exuberance because of their hatred for Israel. They went further than God necessarily intended for them to go, but God still determined that I would use the heathen to discipline my people, but... I am going to, in turn, discipline the heathen. I'm going to destroy the heathen because of what they have done too. They've done wrong as well, and I will take my vengeance out upon them. We know the verse, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It's a good reminder for us. I was working on another um, series of little videos on, you know, does the Bible really say that? Uh, and if you have any good quotes or sayings that you hear people, you know, or you heard maybe mom and dad or your aunt and uncle or something say growing up that wasn't actually in the Bible, but everybody seemed to think it was, let me know. I'd like to know those things. Uh, but one of these uh, that I was thinking about was, you know, the idea of turning the other cheek. Uh, and, you know, is that in the Bible? Well, this is one of those where, yeah, it actually is in the Bible. And uh, explaining biblically what that means. And how as Christians, that's what we think so contradictory to the Bible itself. I'm sorry, so contradictory uh, to uh, society. Society thinks that we need to retaliate at equal or more than equally uh, to what somebody has wronged us. So if somebody wronged us at a level five, we need to wrong them back at a level five or six or more to try to preempt them from ever wronging us again. And that's the way society teaches. You get back at them. It's your right. You must do it. Don't be a doormat. Don't get walked all over so you retaliate. Whereas God says, 
That's not the way I want you to live as Christians. God is the one who will take vengeance. Israel was in no place to take vengeance right here, but God was going to. In fact, God told them he was going to take vengeance on a nation that hadn't even come up and arisen yet for a thing that they had never even done, for a wrong that Israel had not yet suffered. But God says, I will take vengeance. And he says, I will not meet thee as a man. The humiliation that God was going to impose on Babylon is exactly the humiliation that Babylon put upon Judah and upon Jerusalem. God was going to humble Babylon. He's taking vengeance, and he cannot be talked out of his judgment. He's not going to meet them as a mere man. He's going to meet them as God. And then look what it says in verse number 4. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name the Holy One of Israel. God is going to take vengeance on you, Babylon, one day. Israel, God is going to take vengeance on your captors one day. And who is it that's going to go out there and take this vengeance? Who is this, our Redeemer? It is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah can't seem to help himself here. We see so many times, you know, Isaiah and God giving God's credentials and giving His names. He can't help himself. When he sees that how God is going to take vengeance on his enemies one day, on the enemies of God's people, he praises God and he boasts in his Redeemer. Can you believe that we have such a Redeemer as this? Can you believe that we have such a Savior as this? That Hebrew word uh, that is translated Redeemer here is Gawal, and it means uh, to be a close relative or a kinsman redeemer. Now, you may wonder why is that important. When we think about a kinsman redeemer, they had to be able to deliver. Uh, they had to be financially able. They had to be physically able to deliver um, their, their next of kin here out of their situation. Well, the Holy One of Israel does not lack the ability to deliver. Also, the Gawal, the, uh, the, the, the Redeemer, had sometimes to exercise bloody vengeance. The kinsman Redeemer sometimes had to bring vengeance upon somebody. Well, Christ will work a bloody vengeance on Babylon for the oppression of his people. We have a Savior who not only shed his blood, but he also promises all throughout the book of Revelation too that he will bring vengeance upon those who have hurt his people, Israel, and upon those who have hurt his church. He will do that. Another thing that the Gawal had to do was he had to pay ransom to free a prisoner sometimes. If you were held prisoner, your kinsman redeemer would pay that price. The Lord Jesus paid with his blood on Golgotha to ransom his people. When we think about these considerations of what the kinsman redeemer was supposed to do, of course, there could be many more than that. I would say that that Hebrew word, the wall, was very fitting for Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. And so his credentials are given. As for our redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Look at verse number five. <clears throat> Sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was wroth with my people. I've polluted mine inheritance. I've given them into thine hand. Thou didst show them no mercy. 
Upon the ancient hast thou very heavily laid thy yoke. And thou saidest, I shall be a lady forever, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst remember the latter end of it. God here talks about why he called in Babylon to do this work. He said back there, you know, sit down and listen. For you're not going to be called this lady of kingdoms anymore. I'm going to remove, remove this, this title. I'm going to remove this crown of being the lady of the kingdoms, of being a ruler of rulers, a king over kingdoms. I'm going to remove your richness. I'm going to remove your honor and your respect among the nations. Why? He lists, listen what he says. He says, I was wroth with my people. Why was God wroth or angry with his people? Well, we've talked about it many, many times over. Because of their rejection of, of being obedient, their rejection of the truth that was given to them in the Word of God, they would not obey. They would not worship as God had told them to worship. They would not forsake false gods as God had told them to forsake false gods. They were letting their sons and daughters marry the heathen. Um, and, and it wasn't a racial thing as much as it was a religious thing that they worship false gods. And when you take a worshiper of God with a worshiper of Bel or Baal or any of the other false gods, and you try to mix the two together, it does not work. And anybody, any Christian who's married a non-Christian will tell you it's hard. This is why God told them no. This is why God tells us to be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Which is a command, by the way. He says, I was wroth with my people. Yeah, then they had rejected the worship of God. They had rejected him. They might have continued to use his name. They might have continued their worship in the temple, but they were not doing it from pure hearts. And they were not doing it for pure reasons. And they were not doing it with pure methods. They were doing it for their own reasons, for their own selves' sake. They were doing it in their own way, and it made God angry that his people had turned their heart and that they had gone off and adulterated with other gods. I would think that even today, God is not happy with his people, though. Even today, they have rejected Jesus Christ, haven't they? Now, there will come a day where God will turn his attention back to them after the church has been raptured, and they will turn their hearts and their eyes back upon him. There will be a day when this does occur. But he says, I was wroth with my people. He says, I polluted mine inheritance. You think about that. God makes no mistakes. He caused Babylon. Not, I can't say caused Babylon. We've talked about this before. It's not like Babylon was some little angel nation and God said, I want you to do this wicked thing. And they said, no. And God said, yes. And they said, okay, fine. It, wasn't, it didn't go like that. It, they were already bloodthirsty. They were already hungry for more land and for more you know, people and for more money. And so God said, well, why don't you go over on this way? I want you to come over to where my people are. And whether they realized it or not, God led them to his people to discipline them, but they went farther than they needed to go. And he, he describes that here. He says, Thou didst show them no mercy. When you came into my people, you were cruel to them. I can't believe the things that you, we, we see and hear, the kind of things that are going on today, don't we? You were cruel to my people, Israel. It was inhumane 
the way that you treated them. You showed them no mercy. He says, upon the ancient thou hast very heavily laid thy yoke. You didn't care. You took you know, old people and you laid a very heavy burden that they were incapable of being able to fulfill. And so we see the disparity, the ancient, the elderly, being made to you know, bear this yoke, you know, uh, the idea of, of being used to pull you know, carts, of, to bear a burden. It's an image, really is what it is, that you've, laid, you've inordinately laid burdens upon the people that they could not bear unmercifully, regardless of age, regardless of humanity. And thou saidest, I shall be a lady forever. So we back up and go through this again. He says, sit down and be quiet and listen. You're not going to be called a lady much longer. I was wroth with my people. I polluted mine inheritance. I gave them to you in your hand. Maybe they might have not have thought of it that way. They might have thought it was because of their great generals. They might have thought it was because of their great military might. But God says, no, I literally gave them to you. And then what did you do? You went and you showed them no mercy at all. You were inhumane to them. And you thought you were going to get away with it. You thought, I will be a lady forever. I will, in other words... You thought you were, you were going to be, from that point on, rulers, kings of kings, kings of empires, that you were going to be rich, that you were going to be powerful, and that that was going to continue. No empire has continued, has it? Every empire falls. The same can be said about America, even though we're not an empire. But the same can be said. Just like Israel was very strong and powerful at times when she was obedient to God, and then at a times where she was not, God allowed others to come in and to conquer them and to discipline them. The same thing can be said about America. Just because we may boast the largest military, uh, you know, <clears throat> you can't combine two or three other nations to match our military. But that does not mean that we are not untouchable. Sennacherib thought he was untouchable, but God in one night said no. Just because no other nation can touch you, just because my people in Jerusalem can't touch you, doesn't mean that I can't. We need to take this warning. No one is going to be a lady forever. No one is going to have that beauty forever. No one is going to have that innocence forever. No one is going to have that power or that sway or that influence forever. He goes on to say, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst remember the latter end of it. Babylon was blind. Babylon was cruel. And now he is opening uh, Israel's eyes and hopefully Babylon's eyes, if they read it one day, he's opening their eyes to the fact that they were also, I lost my place, I have to find it again. There it is. Proud and presumptuous. And for all of these reasons, he, God promises to humble Babylon. You know, we can... We can take this passage and we can make application of it in a variety of ways. In the book of Revelation, there is Babylon. Remember how it, as we studied through Revelation, we saw the term Babylon mentioned a lot. And it wasn't referring to the actual nation of Babylon because it, doesn't, it, you know, it wouldn't exist in that time period. Now it's possible. Uh, you know, it's the nation of Iraq. And even you know, Saddam Hussein wanted to rebuild the city of Babylon. 
uh, which a lot of people looked at like, wow, it's crazy. You know, they're trying to rebuild the city of Babylon. You know, this is like revelation end time stuff right here. A lot of people take Babylon to mean uh, the adulterated church. There's all, there's the, there's the society and the world Babylon. There's also the religious Babylon. And a lot of people take that to mean the Roman Catholic church. Uh, that it is referring to there, but it could not, it, not just them necessarily, but we think of religion in and of itself. In her self-satisfaction and frivolous self-deception, she says, I shall be a lady. The corrupt church. She claims royal riches, power, and honor for herself forever. A queen feels she must reign. And that was also the church's goal quite early on to reign and to rule over the entire world. Soon, and I like this, soon it placed a cross on its steeple instead of upon its shoulders. I'm not against steeples or crosses, but think about that. Soon it placed a cross on its steeple instead of on its shoulders. Who carried the cross on their shoulders? Christ did. With all its veneration of the cross, it hated the cross in a spiritual sense and reached for the crown of the world. Isn't that interesting? I saw, I was just scrolling through YouTube or something, and I saw a, a Protestant church service. I think it was a European Protestant church service, and they have these big, you know, elaborate, you know, robes and, and hats and everything. And uh, he uh, had this big golden cross in his hand as he walked around and he did various things. I don't know what it was all about. Various things with that cross and he would stop and do this thing at this candle and stop and do that thing at that candle. And I don't know, they must have a, a different book of the you know New Testament because I don't see any of that kind of stuff in the New Testament, any instructions into that. Uh, but they have all of their liturgies and all of their traditions that they have to do. And there was just crosses all over the place. He had the gold one in his hand. They were all over the walls, all over his garb. We venerate the cross, we wear it on our clothes, which is fine. But do you venerate the cross in a spiritual sense? We want the money, we want the, the, the influence, we want the popularity, we want the nice clothes, we want the beautiful buildings, we want everybody to think nicely and kindly of us, we want everybody to look up to us as a church or as leaders, as Christians, but we don't want to bear the burden of the cross. We don't anybody, want anybody to look down on us because of the cross. We don't any, want anybody to look down on us because of the doctrines that we believe in, because of the basic universal truths that we got from the Word of God. We don't want anybody to look down upon us because we are attempting to share the gospel or to give out a track. We're afraid they'll look down upon us. We're too afraid to bear the burden of the cross. Well, we want the glory of it. I don't think there was much glory in it for Jesus, was there? We've talked about it before, but it was a, a, a method of torture and execution. We wouldn't walk around carrying little you know, gas chambers around our neck on a chain or electric chairs or firing squad pins, you know, that uh, worshiping those things, glorying in those things. The cross in and of itself is a symbol now for us to cause us to remember the shame, the agony, and pain that our Savior had to suffer. That is why we use it as a that's why If we're going to use it as a symbol, that ought to be the reason why. And notice the cross should be empty too. Rather than 
mourning the crucifixion of Jesus at every single weekly service like some do, where their images still show him on that cross, he's not there anymore. He died. He was buried. He came alive again of his own power. And he rose and he is up, ascended beside the right hand of his Father, interceding for us at this very moment. The cross is empty just like the tomb is empty. Is it so hard to bear the burden of the cross? Yes. As a matter of fact, it can be exceptionally hard. Remember when Peter told Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll follow you, Jesus, even to the death. If somebody arrests you, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to follow you right to wherever they take you to jail. They're gonna, if they're going to throw you in jail, they're going to have to get through me and put me in jail too. You know what, Jesus, if they want to hurt you, you know what they're going to have to do? They're going to have to hurt me too. Jesus, if they punch you over here, you know what? They're going to punch me right here. Because Jesus, I'm going to stick with you through all of it. Jesus understood and wasn't having any of it. And that's when he told Peter that before the night was over, before the cock crowed, you're going to deny that you even know me. You're going to be so ashamed and so scared to be um, grouped in with me, associated with me, that you're going to pretend that you don't even know me. Hey, uh, you're a Christian, right? You go to Shenandoah Baptist Church? What? Where? What? No, I'm, I'm not Christian. <laughs> well, well, whatever would make you think that? No, yeah, no, I know you're a Christian. I know you, I've seen you, your car pull into Shenandoah Baptist Church. No, no, man, you know, I, no, I don't, I don't go to church anywhere. I'm not a Christian. I don't do any of that God stuff. No, really, I, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. I even saw you share, you know, one of the, 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 the sermons on Facebook. I, you must go there. You use some curse words to try to convince them that you're not a Christian and you don't go to that church. You say, well, why would I do that? Peter did it. I don't know him. Going so far as to even curse to try to convince them that he did not know him at all. How fast Peter went from, man, if they hit you, they're going to have to hit me too. If they kill you, they're going to have to kill me too. I'm going to go right with you all the way to, oh, I don't know who that is. Nope. Mm. Anybody ever did that with their kids? <laughs> Your kids, maybe you're in a store and, and they're over there and then they spill something, clatters, things go scattering all over the floor. And you're just like, those aren't my kids. <laughs> I'm going to wait until somebody picks all that stuff up and before I go over there and claim them, you know. Uh, okay, maybe I haven't done that. But doesn't mean you might not have done it. Be ashamed of Jesus Christ. You see, bearing our cross isn't just wearing the glory of it. Enjoying the popularity of it, the attention that it might bring, the good feelings that it might draw from others, or the applaud of man. No, to bear the cross is a hard thing, and it is a trial. And if you're receiving applaud from men for doing so, then it's not bearing the cross. I thought that was an interesting thought. There in verse number seven. So that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst remember the latter end. Verse number eight, he says. Therefore, hear now this, that thou art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in one day, 
the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. We go back there to the beginning in verse number eight, where he said, Therefore hear now this, that thou art given, thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carelessly. This is those that are dwelling securely, at ease. Nothing can touch me. I've got money. I've got the best doctors. I've got the best lawyers. I've got the best you know, systems to secure me. I've got the weapons. I've got the smarts. I've got all of the things. And so I'm never going to be a widow because nothing's going to happen to my husband or nothing's going to happen to my wife. I'm not going to lose any children. That's other people. That's not me. My house isn't going to burn down. My car's not going to be in an accident. My foot's not going to get broken because I looked at a sunset. You know, none of those things are going to happen to me, right? We all thought that once. Little children, like, stop, don't run out on the road. What? Well, you might get hit by a car. That's not going to happen to me. She tries to walk out the door, and you're like, are you wearing that out? No, you can't wear that out to your daughter. Why? Because of the kind of attention it's going to draw to you. And it's, not, it's going to draw negative attention. It can be dangerous for you this way. That's, not, that's other people. That's not going to happen to me, Dad. Everybody thinks that. But God says, it is going to be you. In fact, it's going to be you in one moment, in one day. He says, but these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. Before I get into that part of the verse, go back to where they say, that sayest in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. I am. Like the, the famous musician or the actress or actor. They're young, they're, they're strong, they're beautiful, they have a wonderful voice. Everything seems to be going perfectly for them. Elvis Presley had that moment in his life, didn't it? Didn't he? Didn't say it that way, did he? That's not how he went out either. Michael Jackson had that moment in his life, didn't he? He didn't stay that way, did he? Went out very quickly. Many child actors, they're very popular when they're young, and as they get a little bit older, it doesn't usually work out very well for most child actors. Because they think, I'm young, I'm I'm you know, popular. Everybody likes me. I've got charisma. Everybody wants me in their shows. Everybody wants me at their concerts. And this is how life is always going to be. But that's not how it works. We thought that way in college. We thought that way in high school, right? You know, those, those, those uh, kids that peak in their high school years, that's as really as good as it's ever going to get for them. They were the football star, or the cheerleading you know, um, captain, and that was as good as it ever got for them. And life just kind of went downhill after that. They peaked too early in life, some would say. Here Babylon sits and they say in their heart, we exist, we are, we are Babylon. You can imagine big banners, you know, we are Babylon. Our empire will exist forever and there's none else besides us. God says these two things will come upon you in one night. You'll lose your children. You'll find yourself widows. Man, how quickly things can change in our lives. Don't ever sit there and say, this is never 
going to happen to me. Don't ever sit there and say, I will never get caught up in that. I will never go down this trail or this pathway. This danger will never you know, befall me. I never have to look out for that. We never ought to say never. You ever, you know, never say never, they say. How quickly things can change in just one day. You know, I think back to, it's almost my mom's birthday. My mom's birthday is November 4th. And I, th- I think back to um, 2002, September 11th, 2002. And, you know, one day just a lot of things changed in our, in our family. You know, health was taken away and financial security was taken away. All in one day. So much changed in our household. And those changes have carried on, even to this day. We can sit there and we can think that everything is going to always remain the same. But understand this, Christian. I'm not trying to give you nightmares. I'm not trying to discourage you or send you walking away in depression so that you're just waiting for the tidal wave to come. That's not the point here. Remember, you know, God doesn't always promise to remove burdens. Not every burden was meant to be shed. Some are meant to be shouldered. We went over that a couple Sunday mornings ago. Sometimes God wants to help you carry that burden, and then he wants to use you. Use you to help somebody else who has that, has that burden. You say, well, I don't know anybody else that's going through the same burden as I am. Well, maybe not yet you don't. Or maybe you do and you just don't know it yet. Or maybe it'll happen 10 years from now. And you'll be able to, with the experience that you've had, be able to use it in somebody else's life. Saying, well, in my relationship or my marriage or in my family or in my own personal life, I went through this. I suffered this. And let me tell you how the Lord worked in my heart. Let me tell you what came of it. We continue on here. They shall come upon thee in their perfection. You know, powerful, you won't be able to stop them. For the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. Babylon was famous as a founding place and a breeding ground for the occultic arts and practices. You know, our society today is addicted to pleasures and to power, but these things can very quickly pass away. America can be toppled very quickly. How can, how can you be more responsible with what the Lord has blessed you with this evening? Think about this. Rather than taking your singing voice and elevating yourself or taking your ability or your talent or your looks or your money or whatever it is that God has blessed you with, your your teaching abilities, rather than taking that and elevating yourself and using it to for your glory and your honor, ask yourself this question this evening. How can you be more responsible with what the Lord has blessed you with? How can you use your life to bring honor to God rather than to yourself? It was their arrogance and it was their pride that is getting Babylon rebuked here. Look at verse number 10. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, none seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth and mischief shall fall upon thee. Thou shalt not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Verses 10 and 11 make the hair stand up on the back of your neck a little bit. 
Because it's hard to read through these verses and to not think about America. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness and said, none seeth me. You determine in your heart, actually look at the next phrase too. He says, thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. Sounds a lot like America. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge have perverted thee. You're trusting in your wickedness and said, no one sees it. No one cares. Who's going to stop me? Thus said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. We are Americans. You know, we are the United States. Nobody can touch us. And he says, therefore shall evil come upon thee, and thou shalt not know from whence it riseth. Of course, we know how it worked, didn't it? Don't we? I've talked about it before. Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians come into the city of Babylon overnight through the river that they diverted away, the Euphrates River, and they come on, fall upon them and, and depose and topple the Babylonian Empire in one night. They didn't see it coming. They were drunk. They were partying. They had no clue. Look at verse number 12. Stand now with thine enchantments and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast labored from thy youth, if so be thou shalt be able to profit, if so be thou mayest prevail, thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers and the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor fire to sit before it. Thus saith I'm sorry, thus shall they be unto thee with whom thou hast labored, even thy merchants from thy youth. They shall wander everyone to his quarter, none shall save thee. He says at the beginning there in verse 12, stand now with thine enchantments and with the multitude of thy sorceries. He's challenging them. The sorcerers of Babylon, those who have mixed science and intellectualism, and that's what, one thing that Babylon was famous for. Uh, the, the study of science, the study of intellectualism, they've mixed it with, with magic, with uh, that which they cannot see, mixed it with sorceries. And he says, stand up then and bring your best to me. Bring the sorcerers. Go ahead. If you've, if you've been able to gain anything from your sorceries, from your magic, from your false gods, bring it now. If they have any real spiritual power, then you should be able to stop what I've told you is going to happen. You've got over 200 years to do it, so go ahead and stop it. For the Babylonian sorcery probably also included this mood of complacency because they relied on their magicians to predict upcoming events so they could defeat them. In Babylon, the intellectual and the magical were intertwined. And so the wise man, he was instructed in both of those things. We saw, see, you know, Pharaoh calls his wise men together to try to replicate what Moses has done. Who are those wise men? Well, they're sorcerers and they're also the learned intellectuals. They're the, the scientists of that time. Uh, they're trying, still trying you know, to, um, you know, alchemy. They're still trying to turn things into gold and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they mix the magical together with the, the, the philosophical and with the intellectual. And he says, go ahead and bring all of those things together. You should be able to stop it then, right? If it's so powerful. But then he says, no. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. You know, when you throw together a bunch of pine needles and pine cones, do they burn well? Oh, yeah, they burn fast. 
and they burn hot for like two seconds, <laughs> and then it's gone. It does it leave any coal, hot coals behind to cook on or to keep you warm? Nope, nothing there. It gets cool again really quickly. That's what he's talking about. They shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. There shall not be a coal to warm at, nor a fire to sit before it. Won't be useful as a fire. Well, it's not going to warm anybody. False religion may seem to offer the warmth of helpfulness, but it's not a fire to sit by. Rather, it's one that's going to burn up fast in the furnace of God's destruction. How many people greatly underestimate the blazing strength of God's judgment? God has not judged us yet, therefore he's not going to. How many folks think that way in our world today? God has not judged the LGBTQ yet. God has not judged the homosexual yet. God has not judged Hamas and Palestine yet. So God's not going to. But that's not the truth. God has not judged those who, do, who seek to shut down the church or to shut down the message of the gospel yet. So God's not going to. That's not true at all. In fact, in this time, Isaiah could say, hey, listen, God, you haven't judged Israel for their wickedness and their rebellion yet. I mean, Judah is just going out there sinning and disobeying, and God, you're not doing anything. And God says, I know, not yet. Hey, praise the Lord, God is long-suffering. Praise the Lord, God is long-suffering to us. Why should we want to withhold that long-suffering from others? So that they might have at least one more opportunity. One more opportunity to see the Lord. One more opportunity to understand who Jesus is and to get saved. Many underestimate the strength of God's judgment and the surety of God's judgment. We see the same tragic thinking among those people who would say, Ah, hell doesn't sound so bad. It sounds like a pretty good party. I can't wait till I get there. You watch. Oh, you're going to find me water skiing across hell. And they'll have those similar things. Hey, I'm going to bring a bud with me to hell. They think the fires of judgment are somehow going to be useful or comforting. It's a laughing stock. What are they really doing? They're covering up their uncomfortableness and uneasiness. They're covering up their guilt with gaiety. And so they're going to last for so long. It's a very dangerous sin. A blasphemy of the Spirit, in a sense. That they're making a joke and a mockery out of God and Jesus Christ. And the way of salvation. Yeah. Blasphemy of the Spirit. He says at the very end, last words, final sentence, none shall save thee. None shall save thee. And if we won't find our salvation in the Lord, if we won't look to Him and to be saved, then none will save us either. The same message could be spoken to every person who is unsaved, and the message could be spoken to the United States if it continues on the path that it is on. The nuclear armament, not going to save you. Your allies, not going to save you. Once God has brought down the hammer of judgment upon wickedness and sin, no one can stand against God. So we don't need to worry about China. We don't need to worry about Russia and North Korea and Iran. What we really need to be worrying about in the United States is God. Not because he's unjust or he's unfair, or he's unkind, and any second he could bring that hammer down, and we didn't deserve it. No, no, no. We need to watch that his long-suffering does not run out before we as a nation get things right again.
I don't know if or how that is going to happen. But what I do know is this. It is our duty as a church to try to stem the flow of wickedness that is going on around us. I can't change things in Florida and I can't change things in California. Praise the Lord, I don't have to change things in California. But I am planted here in Augusta County in Virginia. And so maybe here I can have some power to change things. Maybe here I can have an influence. And so let's let Shenandoah Baptist Church be the cork, just a little one, that stems some of the flow of wickedness in our area. So that God's long-suffering can carry on a little longer. So a few more souls can be saved. As we look at chapter 47, I know this was a prophecy of hope, but it didn't sound very hopeful, I guess. I guess the hopeful part is that future Israel is going to have a revenger, an avenger, I guess I could say. Future Israel is going to have an avenger in God, a redeemer in God. And even against a very powerful nation as Babylon is going to be one day. Looking forward to continuing into chapter number 48 into this idea of there is no peace for the wicked in chapter number 48.